So, Haggai chapter 1, verses 1 to 11. On August 29 of the second year of King Darius's reign, the Lord gave a message through the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Jeshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. This is what the Lord of Heaven's army says. The people are saying, the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the Lord sent this message through the prophet Haggai. Why are you living in luxurious houses while my house lies in ruins? This is what the Lord of Heaven's army says. Look at what is happening to you. You have planted much, but harvest little. You eat, but are not satisfied. You drink, but are still thirsty. You put clothes on, but cannot keep warm. Your wages disappear as though you were putting them in pockets filled with holes. This is what the Lord of Heaven's army says. Look at what is happening to you. Now go up into the hills, bring down timber, and rebuild my house. Then I will take pleasure in it and be honoured, says the Lord. You hoped for rich harvests, but they were poor. And when you brought your harvest home, I blew it away. Why? Because my house lies in ruins, says the Lord of Heaven's armies, while all of you are busy building your own fine houses. It's because of you that heavens withhold the dew and the earth produces no crops. I have called for a drought on your fields and hills, a drought to wither the grain and grapes and olive trees and all your other crops, a drought to starve you and your livestock and to ruin everything you have worked so hard to get. Amen. Okay, now, if you do have your Bible with you this morning, let's turn back uh, to the book of Haggai uh, today as we look at chapter 1. I wonder if you are a fan of Sherlock Holmes. Are you a Sherlock Holmes fan? I think I'm a bit of a Sherlock Holmes fan. We've been reading a lot of Sherlock Holmes stories recently. Sherlock Holmes wasn't the first fictional detective, but he was certainly the one who made that kind of literature um, popular. And of course, there's been a recent television series all about uh, Sherlock, um, starring Benedict Cumberbatch, and there have been a couple of films uh, that have come out, uh, starring uh, Robert Downey Jr., um, who plays the role of Sherlock Holmes uh, too. Indeed, I was reading this week that seemingly there has been no other fictional character that has been portrayed more on television and film than Sherlock Holmes. We have a fascination with Sherlock Holmes. In one of Sherlock Holmes' most famous stories, which is called A Scandal in Bohemia, he is looking for a particular photo which is being used to blackmail his client. And so he doesn't know where this photo is. He knows who has it, but he doesn't know where it's been hidden. And so, what he does is he goes and sees the person who he knows has this photo, and he spends some time in their house, and then he pretends that there is a fire in the building. And the reason that he pretends that there is a fire in the building is because he knows that that person will go to the thing that they hold most precious, which is that photo which they are blackmailing this other person with. And so Sherlock Holmes bases this premise that a person will save their most valuable possession from a fire. 
And as we come to think about the book of Haggai today, it got me thinking, if the worst were to happen and you were to suffer a fire in your home, what would be the thing that you would save? What would be the thing that you would save? If your family were all safe, what would be the thing that you would save? What is the thing that is most precious to you? Maybe if you're a musician, it's your, you know, your favorite musical instrument. Maybe for an artist, it would be your, your favorite artwork. But what would be the thing that you would save? Because it's in a situation like that, a desperate situation where fire is ripping through your house, that, that we begin to understand what our motivations are, don't we? Now, in many ways, the first chapter of Haggai is about the motivation of the Israelites. And by extension, it's a challenge about our motivations too. You see, the book of Haggai was written over a, a period of four months or so. And what is wonderful is that in this book, the dates can be checked and cross-referenced. And if you're using the, the church Bible today, you've got your own Bible with you, you might see a footnote in your Bible. Because the footnote tells you exactly when this prophecy was written and what dates it referred to. And what I love about the NLT is it tells you exactly when this happened. And so in chapter 1, we know that the message that the Lord gave to Haggai took place on the 29th of August, 520 BC. Exactly. That was the date. It's quite remarkable, isn't it, to think this dated in such a way. It's the 29th of August, 520 BC. And we saw in the video, which gave the background to the book of Haggai, that the people have returned to Jerusalem. Remember, they, they have been in exile in, in Babylon, and then Persia has taken over, and now there's a remnant who are back in Jerusalem in the time of King Cyrus. Although we see in the book of Ezra that the people began rebuilding the temple, temple, we see that by the end of Ezra chapter 4 that they have stopped. And time has passed, and King Darius now reigns. And in the second year of his reign, we see the message that Haggai brings on the 29th of August. Because the Lord says to the Israelites, why are you living in luxurious houses while my house lies in ruins? Now, it's a question that drives straight at the motivation of the Israelites. You see, they have been putting off working on the temple, and instead they've been working on their own homes. And they've very much been rich towards themselves, and yet they've failed to be rich towards God. And really, they should have noticed, because it seems that nothing has really been going right for them. Because it says here that they have planted much, but they've harvested little. They eat, but they're not satisfied. They drink, but they're still thirsty. They put on their clothes, but they can't keep warm. And their wages just seem to disappear, like they've got holes in their pockets, and so all these things that have been happening to the Israelites should have caused them to stop and to ponder 
and to wonder, well, why is our harvest rubbish? And why is it that our wages just seem to disappear? Why am I never satisfied when I'm eating? They ought to have made the Israelites stop to ponder, to wonder why these things were happening, and to see if they needed to make changes in their lives. And this message that Haggai is bringing to the Israelites is the Lord calling the Israelites to account. Because if we know the books of the law, the Lord said that there would be blessings for the people of Israel when they walked in obedience, but curses when they walked in disobedience. Now we have to remember here that the temple was at the very center of worship to the Lord. All the sacrifices, all the offerings, all the worship were based around the temple. And so if the temple isn't there, then this cannot happen. And the whole point of the Israelites being restored to the land is so that they'll be restored to faith, restored to worshiping the Lord. And so the temple needs to be rebuilt. And so the Lord calls the people to go up into the hills, to go and get timber, and to rebuild the temple. And when they do, the Lord promises that He will take pleasure in it and be honored. And so there's a decision for the Israelites to make. Are they going to obey and put the Lord first and rebuild the temple? Or are they going to continue to look out for themselves despite the consequences? Now, actually, a passage like this, talking about an event that happened on the 29th of August, 520 BC, has much to speak to us about on the 30th of July, 2023. Now, of course, there are cultural differences. We no longer have a temple, and it's not the center of our worship. Because Jesus is our temple. He is the great high priest. He is the sacrifice once and for all. He is the one through, through whom we come to God. It's no longer through the temple and through the, the priestly system. It's through Jesus. But how this passage speaks to us is in terms of our motivations and our priorities. Because are we putting God first in our lives? Is He our priority? That's a good question, isn't it? It's a probing question. You see, when push comes to shove, is God our priority? Or if we are honest, are we really only looking out for ourselves? Is our life just about looking out for our needs and the needs of our families, and we just give God the dregs? Or is God at the front and center of everything we are and everything we do? That's the question. You see, let's not assume that the Israelites are are intentionally being selfish here. Yes, some of them might have been. But it could be that they're, they're just justifying in their own, men, uh, own minds as, as to why not to, to build the temple quite yet. 
Maybe they felt, for example, that the the 70 years had had not quite passed yet, and so the timing was wrong. Remember that the prophecy was that after 70 years they would be restored to their land. Now, if we were watching the video carefully, we remember they went into exile in 587, and now it's 520. My simple math says that's 67 years, not quite 70. Still three years to wait. So maybe they were justifying in their own mind, 70 years not quite passed yet. We don't really need to build the temple yet. We'll just build our own things. Maybe they felt the opposition to building the temple was just too great. Maybe they were justifying these things in their own mind. And sometimes in our own lives, sometimes it's not about us being overtly selfish. But maybe we just make some excuses about not putting God first that we justify in our own minds. You see, we live in a society, don't we, that's all about the self. It's about how we present ourselves and about how we are worth it. That's what L'Oreal says, isn't it? It's about being the best version of ourselves. And we get slogans like this, do more of what makes you happy, which at the surface seems fine until you really think about it. Because why should we not think about other people? And why should we not think about God? Because the whole premise of being a Christian is that we can't do life ourselves, that we can't do it in our own strength, and that we need God And if God is there, and if God exists, then we ought to live out our lives for Him. Now, don't get me wrong here. When we talk of putting God first in our lives, some people kind of get a wee bit nervous. Because they think that means that that as a Christian, we we have no thought about self-worth and self-esteem. But what I want you to see here is this. The putting God before ourselves and making Him the priority does not mean putting ourselves last. You see, and this is a strange thing and often misunderstood. If you put God first in your life, you're actually doing the best possible thing for yourself. You ever thought about that? If you put God first in your life, you're doing the best possible thing for yourself. You see, what happened with the Israelites? Well, when they put themselves first, things were not great. The harvest was rubbish. They were constantly thirsty, not quenched, not satisfied in their life. But when they put God first, what happens? Well, they experience God's blessings. And the same is true for us in 2023. When we put God first, all will be well. And we will know God's blessing. Do you believe that this morning? Do you truly believe that? That when you put God first, in the strangest way, you'll experience God's blessing and all will be well. Now, don't get me wrong here. This isn't some kind of prosperity gospel we're talking about here. Experience shows us that Christians will suffer. 
that there will be times that are, are difficult for us as Christians. Jesus said that would happen. But let's not also fall into the trap of thinking that all the blessings of being a Christian are those to come in the future. Sometimes we might think, you know, and I think culture thinks, you know, being a Christian is pretty boring and, you know, not great, but, you know, it's all about, yeah, the future, you're in heaven, great. As if life on earth is all a bit dull and, you know, not exciting. The Christian life ought to be the most exciting life that you could ever have. What a wonderful thing it is that you can pray, you can ask God to place someone on your mind and in your heart, and God does it. And then you speak to that person, and they might say, do you know something? I've been thinking about faith, and I've been thinking about church, and I want to speak to you about that. Is that not exciting? Of course it is. Let's not fall into the trap of thinking that all the blessings of being a Christian are those to come in the future. The blessings of God are also for now. And if you're a Christian, you're a child of God. You can know the closeness of God, and you can trust that you will have everything that you need. So the challenge to the Israelites was, are you going to build the temple? Or are you just going to look out for yourself? Wonderfully, if you read on in Haggai, and I would encourage you to do so, you will know that the people are obedient to God's call, and they go and they rebuild the temple. They give God His proper place. They make Him their priority. But for us, the question is, who's number one in your life? Who's number one in your life? And I want to say to you this morning, If it's yourself, you're settling for second best. If it's yourself, you are missing out. If it's anyone or anything but God, we are missing out. Do you believe that this morning? Have you experienced that in your life? God wants us to come to him to be obedient to Him, to walk with Him, and to experience the blessings that only He can bring in the here and now and in the forever after. May we have the courage today to say, Lord God, I may not understand this, but I want to put you first in my life because I know that that is the best way to live. I know it's the best way to live that will give me hope for the ever after. But I know that it's the best way to live now. And when I put you first in my life, Lord God, I will experience the blessing. Do you believe that today? I think we have forgotten this in the church. Not just the church in West Kilbride, but the church in Scotland. We've forgotten to put God first. Why is the Church of Scotland really struggling? Well, it ought to make us scratch our heads and wonder. Why were the Israelites struggling here? Because they hadn't put God first. If we put God first, life may not be easy, 
but we can trust that all will be well. Shall we just pray together? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, there is much challenge in this passage today, but we thank you for the great truth that when we put you first, Lord God, then all will be well, that we will experience blessings, yes, for the future, the hope of eternal life, being with you forever and ever but we will also experience blessings in the here and now. That we will experience the most exciting life as we take our hands off the steering wheel of our lives and let you take hold, Lord God, taking us to places we thought we might never be, taking us through experience we thought we might never go through, challenging us in our lives, and giving us the most fulfilling life that we could ever experience. Father, we recognize that this is an upside-down way of thinking, that the world thinks it's all about putting ourselves first, looking out for our own priorities. But Lord God, we thank you that when we put you first, then in a strange way we're also putting ourselves first, because we're doing the best possible thing for ourselves. Heavenly Father, give us courage this day. Give us courage to be the people you've called us to be. Give us courage to be obedient to your call. Help us to be people who put you at number one. So, Lord God, speak to us through your word today, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen.